For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Hello everyone, welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Batanti, and on today's show I am joined by Andy Swope, along with special guest Simone Barros. We are recording on January 17th, 2016. This is episode number 92, where we are discussing Lerner and Lau's musical adaptation of Antoine de Saint-Zupri's beloved novella, The Little Prince, released in 1974, directed by Stanley Donan, and starring Richard Kiley, Stephen Warner, Bob Fosse, and Gene Wilder. You always feel responsible for what you've tamed. The moment he said that, I understood everything. He wasn't like all the other foxes in the world anymore. I tamed him, and now he was unique, at least to me. And my flower wasn't like all those other flowers, because I'd fetched her a screen and put a glass bowl over her at night and listened when she grumbled and now she was my rose, and I was responsible for her, and I had to go back and take care of her. I brought you a present. It's a secret. So I wrote it down. The last time I saw him, he was sitting in a wheat field. What was the secret? It's only with the heart that one can see clearly. What's essential? is invisible to the eye. It's only with the heart that one can see clearly what's essential is invisible to the eye. These are the secret words of wisdom the fox imparts to the little prince at the close of their friendship, and words which arguably define the thematic intentions of St. Zuperi's text in Donin's topsy-turvy film adaptation. But if children are such incredibly aware visual beings, much like the moviegoer, then who are these words really intended for? In the novella, those words and the words spoken by the little prince seem to restore the aviator's self-expression, reminding an introverted man that life isn't worth living if one never embraces the magic of love. But after watching the Lerner and Lau's film adaptation, I have to wonder if this transformation is lost on screen. 
While the words are, are same as written, their poetic sentiment seems absent. Perhaps it's due to the enforced Broadway showstoppers and disjointed visual language, or is it more so because the film fundamentally misunderstands the audience it's truly speaking to, the grown-ups rather than the children? I do think that there is an effort to speak to both in the filmmaking and the approach to the film and the subject matter, absolutely. Um, you can't avoid speaking to both, I feel like, if you even just do what it seems like Lerner and Lau did when they wrote the script um, or the book for the musical was almost just verbatim. I watched it as a child and felt like it was for me. And then I watched it as a grown up and still felt like it was for me. So I think that it has that about it. Yeah, I actually completely agree with Simone. Although I do also agree with your uh, opinion that the, uh, the Broadway showstoppers do seem enforced. You could easily have done this without it, without those, and I think it might have been slightly even more affecting to me. And the songs actually are very unmemorable. Um, the only one that I really felt worked to the great extent was Bob Fosse's number, and that's more because of his dancing than the actual song itself. The two musical numbers that I remember the most, and even as an adult could like sing along to because I remembered the melody or I remembered the words, was, you know, The Snake in the Grass and also Closer with Gene Wilder. I think a lot of that is his performance, though. I agree 100%. Both of them, when Bob Fosse comes on screen and when Gene Wilder comes on screen, the, there is a magic that seems to ignite. And I almost feel like Stanley Donan, the director, almost kind of wakes up in a way that we haven't really seen him as he's filming the other scenes. Uh, he becomes more energetic in his cuts. He becomes more dynamic in his shot variety. Whereas in the other musical numbers where we're on the planets, and even when we're that, the, the one where we're up in the air, which is sort of the libretto of the pilot, which should be this great exclamation of his frustration with grownups and that he feels he has no place to be in the world, it's really constricted. He's just in this little pilot cockpit, and we just have the background of the sky against him. And the only variety we get is sometimes his plane goes upside down and we cut away to these wide shots where the plane is kind of supposed to be doing acrobatics, but it looks more like it's falling. So it's kind of very bizarre that I feel like the director is kind of absent until he's working with Gene Wilder or working with Bob Fosse. Well, it doesn't match the, the shots of him in the plane and then the shots of the plane in the sky yeah. don't, don't really cut together in a way that's convincing. No, but I don't know if they're supposed to. I think we're supposed to look at it as this is like almost like his imagination, mm -hmm. but Simone is right in that it is plainly shot that you would think that someone like this, the aviator, who's supposed to have this like vast imagination as a child at least, his imagination of flying would be a little more spectacular or um, expressive. Yeah. The other the other thing about the Bob Fosse Gene Wilder numbers that I wonder if they're more effective also because that for me is the moment of the film where it really embraces depicting a child's world in a sense that you have these these animals that are first introduced as animals and then they transform into people and so there's almost dual realities occurring on screen there's the reality that he's interacting with these animals but then there's the unconscious reality of these animals becoming people and then becoming these objects of consciousness which you know, it's very fable-like, but it also is very in keeping with how children navigate through through the world in that these animals kind of become transitional ob objects that he learns something, something from, where in, what is different about it from reality is that normally the, 
the transitional object for a child would be like a, a stuffed animal or a blanket. And here it's, it's an animal that becomes a, a person. So it becomes kind of metaphysical. And those transitions feel fairly effortless. You don't really question it that much. I mean, the only issue with the Bob Fosse moment is that he's supposed to be a rattlesnake. And then the snake that you're seeing on screen is a boa constrictor. <laughs> and a boa constrictor is also not poisonous. So, <laughs> And you're hearing rattling sounds, but there's no rattle on the, on the tail of the snake. <laughs> But other than that, like the transition from the animal to the to the human being is fairly effortless. You don't see a metamorphosis on screen or anything like that. Yeah, I agree with you that I think that I think with the fox they just do it with jump cuts. We just see the fox and we see Gene, then we see the fox and we see Gene. And, and you know, with Bob Fosse, it's, it's again, you know, he's the snake is lying on the branch, and then it's a jump cut to where. Bob Fosse is, you know, lying with his legs, you know, intertwined on the branch. So, um, so yeah, I, I agree with you that I think that I liked the way they did those transitions. And, um, and yes, it is frustrating the, that the snake is so, so far away from accuracy of what snake would poison you. But also I think it's interesting that the interaction between the snake and the, and the little prince and their interaction between the fox and the little prince is very intense. It's, it's a lot of give and take. And like you said, he learns from those interactions. Whereas when he's on the planets, he doesn't really truly learn anything from those characters. Those characters seem to be going on their routine without his, him being present. So the interaction, it, it seems like it's trying to be a little bit funny or or include some of the nonsense that we see in like more of a Lewis Carroll exchange. Um, but the book, Dexpree, doesn't really write that way. He doesn't really write with a lot of word puzzles and a lot of like nonsense. Instead, he writes things that are much more touching and much more heartfelt. And I think that Stanley Donan captures that in those two moments. Well, it's, it's also though, because I think it's the mobility of the scenes and the fact that He's learning something, but he's learning something through the act of play. So you have the, the dance routine and then him and Gene Wilder sort of frolicking through this forest. There's very much they're playing with one another, which is different from his other encounters with these adults where these planets are very hermetic, restrictive spaces where there isn't a lot of mobility and there isn't much to there isn't really any exploration to have. And you're he's encountering people that are not interested in exploration and one of the moments i'm curious andy about with if one of the moments that i cried when i was young is one of the same moments it's right before he meets with the fox where he's in the garden of roses and he's the little princess sad because he realizes that his rose isn't the only one and so i think there's like a falseness that he kind of feels about himself or about how he loved her and then the fox kind of reestablishes that no there was a special relationship between him and the rose there's a thousand foxes there's a thousand boys but now that we're tamed you're a special boy to me and i'm a special fox to you and so to and then it ends up reinforcing the prince and his love for that one rose yeah i mean that probably the uh, primary instance of what gets me, and even got me with the book as well, for me it was almost like a reaffirming of why you love something, even if there are countless things that are just like it. And uh, 
I thought when he first entered the Rose Garden and he kind of made that remark, oh, she's going to be really upset when she learns there's other ones like that, I thought was humorous. Oh, he's got this certain idea of this rose as kind of a uh, vain object. Well, it's also the appearance of the rose on his planet affirms his existence, and it gives him responsibility outside of just performing tasks with no reason in mind. I mean, really, the little prince is not that dissimilar from the lamplighter in the book. What changes is the sprouting of the rose, and that he is now aware of his existence, and then what the rose's vanity is what leads him to want to leave and go out and understand the meaning of his of his existence. Yeah, I mean, his duty of cleaning out the volcanoes is no different than the lamplighters continuously lighting the lamps. It's just a menial task that you have to do, because it's your job to do, whereas caring for the rose is an expression of love. I almost feel that the prince does gain that growth that he set out to understand. He says that he doesn't understand his rose, and he does, didn't understand the things she said to him. After his you know, relationship with the fox, he starts to now speak. He says he understands things. He tells the pilot, I was too young then. I understand now. Um, so he does go through a growth, which is kind of interesting because I don't see the pilot in the film going through that much of a growth that the little prince goes through. Yeah, I agree. It's the, the great fault of the film that the pilot, even though in, in the voiceover, in the dialogue, expresses this isolation, his character does not, the performance that Richard Kiley gives doesn't express any of that. And so Richard Kiley always comes off as a very empathetic, compassionate person, even when he's acting as though he isn't. With the book, the the writer, the narrator of the book kind of is, his language in, at the start of the book is very resentful. He's very angry with the world that they've rejected his creativity and this book is to set out to prove them otherwise. Um, and I, I just would have liked that the pilot character's resentment would have been heightened. And then you see that through this relationship with the little prince that, you know, it is restoring his, his faith in the world. Well, I almost think that his first number while he's flying his plane singing is almost Showing that he is not resentful. He's putting on an act when he says he talks about golf and money, but this is who he really is. Like, there almost is no resent at all in him. His and even gold when, scarf um, is, is great evidence yeah. of that as well. Uh, and even when, uh, how you said in the book, when he becomes agitated with the little prince in the film, it never even comes across that he's agitated with the mm -hmm. prince. And and there's also there's also you know there's text from the book that is worked in as dialogue. I remember where he mentions asteroid B612, and he says, I think you came from asteroid B612. In the book, you know, that detail is being presented as past tense. Why would a character that is so resentful, so disappointed with the world, make some sort of outlandish assumption or hypothesis that this character comes from asteroid B612? It expresses that this person very much remains sustained, you know, that childlike wonder about the world. Well, the book becomes concerned with the verisimilitude of the film, of the story that he's telling. So he offers the 
asteroid B612 is like proof that the, that the boy is real, that the prince was real. He even in the narration of the book, he even says, a grown-ups need numbers. And so if it, they won't believe this boy exists if I tell you about his volcanoes and about his rose and about a sheep inside of a box that I drew. But they'll believe that the little prince exists if I tell you he's from an asteroid B612. Like he, he kind of states that. And I find, you know, in a passive aggressive kind of way, you know, the same way he does say, I don't show anybody my picture anymore of the boa constrictor with the elephant, you know, that he ate because they'll just say it's a hat. And then that's like Andy, to your point, how he says, so I just talk about golf and bridge and then they are very happy to have known a responsible person or reasonable, sensible person or something like that. So it's like he sort of have, he's sort of supplanted himself. He's given up on who he really is for an outward accepted persona. Um, and with the little boy, what so shocks him with the little prince is when he shows the little prince the picture of the boa constrictor with the elephant, the little prince immediately is like, I don't need an elephant inside of a boa constrictor. I need a sheep. I asked you to draw me a sheep. And it's this kind of wonderful moment for the pilot where he feels someone just connected with him or just understood him. But do you feel that scene plays successfully in the film? No, it doesn't seem as intense in the film. Um, it seems more of like an amusement of the pilot in the film. It doesn't seem in, in the book, it's at that moment, or it's, it's close to that moment where the narrator says, this is very sad for me to retell this story because I really miss my friend and I'm writing this down to, so I won't forget him. So the book, it's very touching. And that this may be the only, the way you read it, it may very well be the only friend this narrator of the book ever has. Yet in the movie, it's more amusement. It's more grownups don't understand you and me. The one moment he even gets a little frustrated with the little prince is where the little prince is talking about his rose and he's trying to fix the motor on the plane. So he doesn't really, an experience that I think parents can, you know, relate to is that they're half listening to their child prattle on. So they just kind of say whatever comes to the top of their head. And the little prince really gets upset at him and says, it's of no consequence to you, but the rose is very important to me. And that the pilot catches himself and then he apologizes. I was being a grown up. And that's where the prince, you know, runs away. And then we get this song of where did you go? You know, so they shift the moment, not from being where he recognizes his drawing, but instead they shift it to this moment that actually doesn't exist in the book of the pilot losing the prince and feeling abandoned and singing, you know, in this empty desert, where did you go? Where have you gone? And I think that shift completely kills the power of the moment from the book. Because I actually thought it was a very, a very moving moment in the book that in the film just seemed almost lifeless. Well, there's always a sense with the pilot in the film that his relationship to the Little Prince is more a fascination with the, with the alien of him. Yeah. You know, rather than looking at him as a, a peer or a contemporary, there's always sort of this, tell me a story, tell me your story so I can document it. Um and then exploit you, <laughs> you know. I, yeah. It's yeah, a very different relationship than the one depicted in the book. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, Andy, that it, it undermines it and um, kind of saps some of the magic out of the story. I mean, where I do think the film is really effective is how it uses the elephant inside the boa constrictor as a way to represent the entire visual language. I mean, that get the use of the fisheye lens 
on the planets, there's this consistency in people being too big for the space that they're occupying, trapped by the objects surrounding them, and there's an immobility to everyone. Um, and you see that on the planets. Uh, you see that in how they choose to visualize uh, the woman in the rose. The way that the camera is framing her is always keeping her at a scale that would keep her entrapped inside of this pedal. And so that is something that's carried throughout throughout the entire film. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't noticed that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just as a kid, it's, it's very funny when you're watching the distorted faces, the distorted nose of the numbers guy, um, the distorted like cheeks of the historian. And he that the historian really works with it. That actor really enjoys. And when he does like, what is truth? You know, how do you spell it? He's having a lot of fun with the fact that there is that large lens. And you're right. It would definitely contrast with those wide shots of the little prince like in the desert or the or the pilot in the desert, these expansive and all those zooms that Stanley Donan does with that. I think that is true. I guess he kind of breaks that visually when he uses the fish eye for Gene Wilder as he's running about the forest, but it doesn't have the same constriction that it does. With no, and that's the unfortunate part because I feel like the fish eye with Gene Wilder is more to, it's about accentuating space, making spaces suddenly look bigger than they are, which is in total contrast to what the visual language of the movie has been up until that moment. It almost feels like he's maybe trying to visualize the little prince's perspective of seeing this space for the first time because it is it does make suddenly this forest look so alien to us as viewers but it just feels arbitrary with no real thematic intention behind it i think that we don't need it because gene carries so much of the energy and the pacing and what he does with the text that he's you know his dialogue where it takes directly from the book it sounds new, like, the, but that's just the way Gene Wilder says everything. When he asked about the prince's planet, and he goes, are there any hunters? And he says, no. And then he says, are there any chickens? And he says, no. And he goes, well, nothing's perfect. And there's this wonderful shift in, you know, expectation that Gene Wilder gives. And it makes the text that, I mean, because that's a direct, you know, line from the book. But it feels surprising when Gene says it. Well, so is, so is the, it's only with the heart that one can see clearly. His line delivery of those two lines where he chooses to pause um, is unexpected. And for me, that is, that is the only real moment in the movie that emotionally resonates. Yes, Andy, that's the second part that I cried. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he says that. You mentioned the, the historian earlier, and um, that's Victor Spinetti. And I actually think one of the, the problems with those scenes earlier is I don't think Stanley Dunn handles the comedic parts of the king, general, historian, and businessman very well. And Victor Spinetti's appearance makes me think that Richard Lester could have done it pretty well. Yeah, I knew I recognized the actor from somewhere. I mean, I think the historian scene of in terms of the planets is the most successful one because it... But that's I. it's because of Spinetti's performance, though. It is, and but it's also, I think some of the dialogue in the I'm a historian, I make things up, that's what I do, and then him questioning him, well, is that true? And he doesn't know what the word truth. And that and that to me, I wish the film explored that further because in the book there is, you know, there are a lot of gaps in terms of how things 
happen. You know, there's no mention of how the little prince travels in the book, which this movie attempts to answer. And I could have sworn I, I could have sworn the birds were mentioned. In no, the, they're they're in the not. Book. They're not mentioned. They're in the animated series, which is taken from the book. That's why I. I thought so too. I was I'm confused. Pretty sure the birds but, uh, are in when the I... book. No, I, I did comb through it because I also started to overlap. The animated series also allow does the comment where he catches a comet. Yeah, he catches so the, a comet. The birds, yeah, the birds kind of help take him, him from his planet. Right. And so I was looking for that in the book as well. And, and yeah, neither of those, okay. neither of his transportation is actually ever directly given. In fact, the pilot in the book says there's so much he doesn't know about the prince because he could only learn from the prince what the prince would let slip out. That's where the idea of truth becomes interesting because then it in the movie, I wish it would play with this more of what of the text that the pilot is is sharing with us. What of that is what the little prince told him? And then what of, of that is his own manufacturing, his own creating of this mythology? And the movie does absolutely nothing with that potential idea, even though it introduces it in the sequence with the historian. But that just feels like it's a comedic interlude yeah i mean i also think the planets don't work because in the case of the king and then the the accountant character is they're sort of burdened with this terrible song that they have to sing and both <laughs> yeah. and both people yes. can't perform it and the staging for it this i would say the staging for all the planet musical numbers the staging for it's a hat or that's a hat the hat song i'm really surprised that the staging is so clumsy and uninteresting because Stanley Donan is a choreographer. It's where he began his career. Yeah, but they're so cramped, all those scenes. Almost like he like designed them to be so cramped that there is very little movement. Well, I think that gets into the idea of, of using the, the elephant in the bow constrictor as like a visual theme throughout the film. But, you know, I, I don't know how... Because that, that, that also does... It sees itself in other ways, like even in just the way that the film visualizes the little prince living on his planet in that really he is too big for his planet. Uh, and his planet is a very flat, two-dimensional space like the illustration is. But those images, they're so disjointed. And then when you see something like him using the fisheye lens later in the film for a completely different reason, it starts to feel like maybe that is more accidental than intentional the staging of the little prince on his planet is beautiful the planet kind of moves a little bit he rotates around it we get to see him kind of walk upside down a little bit there's a lot of nice attention spent and time in choreographing that or staging that and then not as much like with the planets and it doesn't have what could be interesting which is a sort of camp to it which is also happening at this time period in 1970s for film musicals, there is the inclusion of we're very aware that this is a costume piece. We're very aware that this is kind of like a blanket tied around our neck. But this film doesn't have any of that. It, it, it's kind of really isolated. Well, another musical that came out the next year was Tommy. And while watching it, oh, I yeah. thought of what Ken Russell would have done with it. I mean, uh, especially the various planets that he went to. Mm -hmm. It does seem like there's sort of a conflict of the musical of yesterday conflicting with the musical of tomorrow as interest as much as I like the snake in the grass sequence. And even I do think Stanley Donan wakes up in the sense that he and his classic Hollywood sensibilities are strong in that he lets the viewer observe the body. Like you can see that there's a tremendous amount of coverage shot 
for that sequence that they're intercutting, and I almost think it's maybe too busy. But, you know, I don't know that the music is really congruous, congruent with, with Bob Fosse's choreography in the sense that Bob Fosse is, like, heavily sexualized, and whatever is sexy about the song, it's what he's bringing to it. So there's, yeah. like, this real sentimental Donan Lerner Lau musical philosophy with someone yes. like Bob Fosse, and then even Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder is such an unexpected performer, which is not in keeping with the tradition that these other people are coming from. I think they should have had um, younger uh, people do the music. I mean, there were such a great time for music that I think they would have been able to find someone other than, to be honest, two guys from the classic Broadway sense of musical. I mean, they did Camelot and things like that. Well, what if The Who had done The School well, uh, or, or or Pink Floyd? or you Well, know, I like... mean, I, I almost thought, like, you know, what if someone like um, Cat Stevens, but that would have been too folky, I suppose. For, no, that say, could work. The dance numbers, I agree though, with you. But I think he would have caught the emotion of it. I agree 100% because, yeah, Lerner and Lau definitely feels past their time. Um, even you can hear in the songs that they've written for The Little Prince, it has a lot of the older um stances that we hear in Camelot that we hear in My Fair Lady a lot of articulation of verbiage which is really great I love both those musicals for what they are but when by the time and you can feel I feel that in the film The Little Prince you do feel that contrast you feel that struggle because we're in the desert you know all the Lerner and Lau's music really works in these large set pieces in these very vibrant colorful and and peopled environments whereas when you have the musical what we see in you know cabaret or jesus christ superstar where we're we're in a desert or we're on a location and the only we only have two dancers and we only have two characters so this reconfiguring of musical and even why a person sings in the musical you know andrew lord weber who's new new kid on the block he moves everyone into singing as though they are more of a rock and roll you know kind of person or tradition and the folks I, I agree Cat Stevens would have been could have been right in that sort of folk attitude that, that maybe the pilot sings when he is crashed because he has that to occupy himself so he's more like this hippie moment of pulling out my little ukulele or whatever and and playing would wouldn't have been the ukulele in the 70s it's more <laughs> of today's period well even Harry Nielsen oh yeah oh he would have been perfect just in that he was actually doing musicals so and writing music for films. So, you know, he would have been perfect. I mean, he would have been right off the point as well. Right. And or even I'm even thinking of like some of like the French Moog musicians mm -hmm. like Jean-Jacques Jacques Paris or somebody like that who where there is like a science fiction element to their music already. Yeah, I mean, the problem with the movie kind of being a musical is that it exaggerates and then it exposes the artifice of the narrative and where what I like about the book is that there is an urgency in the writing and there is sort of this survivalist element of an awareness of we're losing water our days are numbered and we may die and there's sort of a a desperation in the writing that is not in the film there like the film isn't there is no physicality to the story yes I, I agree that we're aware of the eight days countdown in the book mm -hmm. yeah Whereas in the film, the water comes right before we then need to go out and look for mm -hmm. it, you know, so yeah, we're kind of aware just... that we don't. And then and then when they get to the water, there is, you know, a very 
supposed to be very joyous and playful, but the pilot has been so needy of the prince and and so much wanting the prince's uh, approval and acceptance that when we get to that scene, it, it's it uh it's it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> They're not the only ones wet. <laughs> Yes, there's just a lot of the water splashing and water on the faces of the boy streams, you know, hitting his mouth like it just is. Well, there's the, the there's the one scene where uh, Kylie's like kind of like spitting it out in a fountain fashion <laughs> and the prince is catching it in his mouth, which was <laughs> <Yes>. awesome. <laughs> yes. It's also in thinking about. Bob Fosse and his choreographed number and then this sort of merging with yesterday and tomorrow, it could have been a more effective musical if Stanley Donan may have taken a cue from something like Cabaret where he isolates the movements more. Like he, he actually, the scale of the movie feels smaller, which it already feels small, but the way it's photographed is it's sort of trying to always make you aware of this vast space that they're in. And it's just funny that the moment where he does isolate is the water sequence, the oasis sequence, Absolutely. where it becomes very specific in what he wants you to see in the frame. Whereas I think if the Bob Fosse number, which I like for the most part how it's photographed, though, if he would have isolated specific movements yes. tighter, that would have been more effective. I agree. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And and I wonder why he doesn't seem to be at all in conversation or I don't even it feels like Stanley doesn't even isn't even aware of cabaret or aware of this other you know these ways of shooting now it seems like he's very aware of Jesus Christ Superstar there's a lot of zooms that we see in the desert scenes you know, in that film and we he does the same thing here other than that they're really seeing he's he seems unaware and then I don't even know how where he is with the homoeroticism that is in the the finding the water Right. Well, that's where it feels so antiquated because it just is even for for 1974, I feel like you're in the throes of all kinds of political change. And that and you know, that's the thing also, even the search for water, there's no urgency. Yeah. That sequence of them travailing the desert is these these series of wipes that are 2 seconds at a time. Like the sense of time in the film is non-existent. You never feel like they're making a really arduous trek. It actually is interesting because the pilot even says, he goes, there is no water. I can't see the water, but I can see this. I can see this motor. And that's where the little prince is like, then we get the song. The desert is beautiful because it's hiding a well. It is very much that the pilot does not have any urgency of needing the water, but yet the prince, and it further is a lesson of the prince teaching the pilot, what you can't see, which is odd for that pilot to need to be taught that because that was his frustrations with the grown-up world anyway. And now he's doing the same thing. But he's very apologetic in all those moments. He's all like, I'm so sorry I was being a grown-up. I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me, little prince? Even when the little prince talks about his rose, the pilot's response, which is not at all in the book, the pilot's response is, well, I don't have any experience with women. And then he talks about these kind of women, a tulip, a daisy. He's been with every woman. (laughs) A Heather. Yeah, but they've never been special to me. You know, so it's kind of like, okay. You're just a womanizer. Right. You're telling. But then the prince says to him, well, maybe you weren't looking for a rose. And he's like, yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. But it's very bizarre. (laughs) You know, maybe. Right, that the the pilot, but yet the pilot's being very intimate with the prince. Like that's is shot in this two shot 
where they're nose to nose with each other profile and it's just well, I think he's look. I think he's looking for a flower that's named after a young boy through yes. most of the movie. Well, it would it would seem so. Well, that's what I think. The laughter at the end of the film is it's the laughter of all the little boys that he's <laughs> seduced over the years. And there's a way that Gene Wilder has of interacting in his scenes where you don't. One could critique it that way and say, well, you know, Gene Wilder's talking about you'll tame me. Well, even I'll even the song you. he has, you know, we're going to touch, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it is very suggestive. And we had talked mentioned this before, but there is something that Gene Wilder does that you don't feel that sort of tension on screen when he's playing the scene. Like everything seems very sincere and there's never... And it's odd because Gene Wilder is a more dubious performer. So it, it should feel stranger with him. But we are comfortable with him as a performer more so than Richard Ke- Keeley or Kylie. I do wonder how much of that has to do with it. We have like built, built in expectations of Gene Wilder. Yeah, I also think Richard Kiley, just as a performer and the way he performs the pilot, is there's nothing really specific about his character. Like it's a very blank slate and the projector Generic. project well, whatever he, you want onto him. He's portraying it as a member of NAMBLA. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen the documentary Chicken Hawk, which is about members of NAMBLA? No, uh-uh. I mean, he, he would blend right in with it, the way that he <laughs> talks, and the way that he talks about the little prince, and the way he speaks to him and things. I mean, he would fit perfectly within Chicken Hawk. So then that makes me wonder, where is the presence of the director? Each actor's performance style is so isolated and they don't seem to fit or speak with each other in the whole context of the film. Gene Wilder's doing what he does quite well and Bob Fosse does what he does quite well and Richard Kiley is doing <laughs> this Namba, you know, I guess well. Where is where is Well, I don't know if he used Namba as a source of inspiration. Right. No, I get that. But it's but... A, I think it may be <laughs> a good way to describe what might be going, you know. But it just makes me wonder, well, then where are you standing? Because in Stanley's other work, in Singing in the Rain, as different as Gene, as Gene Kelly performs versus, you know, how, oh, I'm blanking on the, the other guy's name. Um, but they're two totally different. One is more clownish in his dancing. One is more fluid and Gene Wilder's athletic. But with Debbie Reynolds, and she has her own, like, American, like, apple pie type of girl. But all three of those different performance styles works so well and in synergy you know with scenes like the good morning scene and so it's just where is that stanley where is that guy you know where's that director now this is his first musical since damn yankees in 1958 so that's nearly 15 years so i wonder how much that has to do with it he had made just straight films in the interim uh, including a couple films that are really good charade bedazzled two for the road i knew zach you hate arabesque arabesque yes yeah, Arabesque, you hate that. Yeah, and it suffers from like sort of this antiquated, you know, aesthetic that this movie does. It's just it's so much more uh, obnoxious. When you talk about his uh, antiquated style, I mean, relate that to uh, a countess from Hong Kong with Charles Chaplin, and how antiquated his style was in that. I mean, is that just the fate of classic era directors? But if you remember, Countess from Hong Kong that opening sequence, there's almost a subversion of it. Like, there's awareness of how... Oh, there's definite moments in Accounts from Hong Kong where there seems like there's more going mm-hmm. on. But those, those um, the scenes within the cabin 
are so poorly done that I mean it just ruins everything around it. Right. Yeah, and you can and you can see on screen that it's constricting the performers that he's working with because oh, they're not they're Marlon not Brando used to that. Is, yeah. I mean, it's like he essentially bolts the camera down and they have to and it's always in a wide master shot mm. just wandering back and forth. There is an argument the sort of disjointed nature of the performers, the disjointed like visual landscape of the movie you know, one way, if I want to play like devil's advocate, that could be interpreted as to why it is that way is that to some degree, that would kind of be like the way that a mind of a child would work. There doesn't need to be a uniformity to understand the reality that you're inhibiting. And so maybe the movie just is like every scene will be a different thing, you know, <laughs> because it will be eclectic and it will be imaginative. But Countess from Hong Kong is that's still that's early 60s, correct? That's 67. Oh, actually. OK. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that movie very much feels like a relic as well. But there's something fascinating about how much of a relic it is, whereas I wouldn't say The Little Prince entirely feels like a relic. I think it feels more like a, a, a relic director trying to be relevant. Right, yes, and very contemporary, yeah. But I also think that's why there are certain successes in the film. Like, I do think The Little Prince on his asteroid is a complete success. I think that's a fantastic sequence. Mm-hmm. But do you think that that is, do you think that aesthetically and formally is keeping with a more classic tradition, or do you think that... No, 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 that's the thing. I don't think it is. I think that actually seemed very modern at the time, and I wonder how much... Stanley Doden had to do with that, or that was just the design that they came up with in pre-production and he was brought mm-hmm. on. Right, well, because it very much, as I understand Stanley Donan's involvement in the film, is he he is sort of a director for hire in this situation. It's not a project that he looked to produce himself initially. Well, I mean, like a few years later, he would make the absolute awful Saturn Three with Kurt Douglas, which is a complete mess in itself. Oh, Andy, come on. Saturn Three is a brilliant film <laughs> and then uh blame it on rio with uh michael king young demi moore and that that's a movie about uh, um underage sex as well maybe that was like in his wheelhouse and, and think of kurt how how old kurt douglas was versus farrah yes, yes, Saturday yes. three on the town there are sort yeah. of rapey elements to on the town there are some songs in on the <laughs> town that are pretty hey we love statutory rape you should too and uh how old was Debbie Reynolds versus uh, Gene Kelly and singing. She was in the probably rain. twelve, and he was like thirty. Right? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's pop. I mean, she was, was probably, probably only like sixteen older. or seventeen. I think. Well, he was born in nineteen. He was born in nineteen twelve. She was born in nineteen thirty-two. So he was twenty years older than her. Wow. Yeah. His it's interest in the older films. man it transcends, you know, gender, children, oh, yeah, yeah. adults. It doesn't matter who it is. It's just an older man with a younger person. Older men don't just like younger girls. Some like young boys, too. And their stories need to be told. You know, if Stanley Donan is a grown-up, he could read the book and he could think, oh, this movie is about a pedophile, or this book is about a pedophile, and he designed his movie around that. That's true. Although, I didn't... You mentioned the homoeroticism thing to me, and reading the book, I didn't get it. No. I actually thought it more fatherly, the relationship. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think... And I think the mo- like I think the moment in the Oasis is trying to be that. It is trying to be, like, a father playing with his son. But the problem of it is, is he is not his father. <laughs> so... No. When you and have we haven't a seen a pretty him really. boy. No, and, and yeah. if anything, the 
boy has been the father to the pilot. Yeah, not the right. reverse. <laughs> Right, I agree. I think that, and I searched for that as I was watching the film this time around. I mean, definitely as a child when I saw it, I really honestly didn't think anything of the splashing around in the water. But why would you, you know? Right. And I wonder why the reason that Lerner, who wrote the script, why he changed it from the well that's in the book. In the book, there's a well and there's all this business about the noise that the pulley makes and that that noise becomes musical so i would think that a person who writes music you know it's looking for those musical moments also the 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 boy's laughter is described as bells hanging on the the stars so again i I wonder why Lerner in why he didn't bring that musical element into uh well well i do i do know that there were significant changes made to the script during production and I know Lerner and Lau both kind of reject the film because they felt like Stanley Donen cut up their music. And I, you know, I went through and I listened to most of the, the soundtrack and you, there are significant edits made in the musical sequences. The Rose, the Rose's musical number is considerably longer. And when it begins in the film, half the song has already played. I will say that song's terrible. Is it better in the longer version though? Yeah, because it also is sort of like there's a build up to the be happy, be happy moment. There's some development in getting there rather than it just sort of and it, it, it you know, it does feel, you know, that's a musical number that feels like it's sort of forcibly arbitrarily inserted. So there are significance that it's made to the, I know that the where did you go sequence is considerably longer, probably for the worse, because, you know, we'd have to watch the pilot run around in the desert deranged for another three minutes, <laughs> which, you know, that the part of what makes that sequence so wretched is that nothing about the movement is specific. I'm just going right. to run around the desert wherever. And, right. and it also is the way that they photograph the desert. Sometimes he feels like he's in a completely different part of the world, depending upon each shot. The continuity becomes confusing. I agree with you. And it surprises me again, because in, and I hate to, you know, beat a dead horse, but in Singing in the Rain, we have that isolated number with Gene Wilder dancing in the rain. It's one person, one space. And so we could do a lot with the sand. We could do a lot with the dunes. The the movement that Richard Kiley has given should be specific. And Stanley, having been a choreographer in his life, he could take that on. I mean, I don't know why you have Bob Fosse only choreograph one number and not have him choreograph the entire film. It seems as though the commitments they were asking from were very isolated. Lerner and Lau recorded in California, even though, you know, they were, there was elements of vocals that were done in London. So I, I think they were sent vocal. Just there's so much difference and disjuncted production I don't know why you don't have a commitment and and everyone kind of comes together and makes this in more of a true commitment to the material and to the film that you're about to make. Well, Andy, do you do you know with with Stanley Donen the the period where he's not directing musical films are those is he shooting on location? Yeah, um, Two for the Road, which is in '67, is on location and bedazzled. I mean. Uh. There's a lot of interior, but I mean, there's also a lot of exterior in it. But I guess if if Damn Yankees case, is so. the last musical he directs, I'm I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming that's shot on sound stages. Yeah, I would. So yes, this is the so first time he's ever shooting a musical on location. 
And that yes. could be a challenge for him as well. Yes, it seems as though from what we can see, he some so much of the elements are con- conceptually are comparable, but the resources and yeah, if that's the difference between dancing in the rain on a soundstage and dancing with sand and the only difference is location, um, then yeah, it would seem as though he had a difficult time. Well, they recreate singing in the rain in the Oasis. It's like practically <laughs> the, the same movements. Yeah. They do the kick with the with the foot and that sort of thing. But then that also makes me concerned because Stanley Doan, on a lot of his work, he was a co-director a lot of times. Well, yeah, with Gene Kelly. Yeah. And same thing with choreography. I mean, he and Gene, actually, he and Gene Kelly started together. I know Stanley Doan was very um, bitter about his working relationship with Gene Kelly because Gene Kelly got all the credit all all the time. It also seems as though with George Abbott, he co-directed you oh, know, yeah, with him true. often. So how many times it just there doesn't seem as many times that Stanley really was on his own directing a musical, at least. R- right. With the musicals like Brigadoon, I think, is just him. Uh, by that's himself, Mane- but a that's lot Manelli, of the other one. Though. That's not Donan. Oh, Brigadoon is, is Vincent Minnelli. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stanley Donan, I think, wanted to do it, though. So then maybe I'm getting confused with Seven Brides. Seven Brides, Brides and... for Seven Brothers is oh. Stanley Donan. Yeah. OK, I think that one he directed by himself. Yeah. There's kind of rapey stuff in that movie too, isn't there? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Well, it's based on, isn't Kidnapping it based on? Based on a uh, a rapist case? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think it actually is, though. Like, there's no. I mean, about... it's you know these these brothers kidnap these girls and throw. Is them it in like taming? Is it based on taming of the shrew at all? Or um, no, that's um, is that Kiss Me Kate? That's taming. Of the oh yeah, yes. With Ki- all, but that's Kiss also Kate with Howard Keel. No, but Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. They're these mountain men, and they kidnap the women. And bring them back to their secluded until until they marry right. them. <laughs> yes, it's based on the legend, the rape of the Sabine women. So it it is specifically based on an ancient Roman, according to Wikipedia, anyway. <laughs> in in the in Saturn three, I think the robot wants to rape. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, that is definitely. Yep. Their stories deserve to be told. The rape. <laughs> There's so many stories about rape survivors, but what about the man that commits it? That's a lot of work. It's a lot of pre-planning for him. I wonder, Andy. I I've mentioned it to Simone over the last few days, but did you did you get any sense of sort of like uh, the film taking sort of the existentialism of the book and kind of reworking it into sort of like Christian allegory at all? It's definitely there in the film, but I also do feel like it's in the book to to a certain extent. I mean, the little prince does seem like a Christ-like figure. There is little doubt to that i think and the appearance of the snake and kind of the garden all those things i mean i mean i i guess the for me the film accentuates those things to such i mean bob fossey even has dialogue where he basically directly insinuates that i am the devil um many of the songs reference god so it starts to feel like his death is sort of a self-sacrifice and that, that he'll end up in heaven but for me the, the question that the the weird dichotomy that the film presents is so he commits suicide at the hands of the devil and he makes his way into heaven how does that work well i think that in the film the introduction of these um judo-christian background is is just something the film is doing and the book doesn't seat the snake as part of the um jewish origination myth of adam and eve and the snake but the film definitely does you know but what they're thinking, I think, in the mind of how this is working, 
is that the little prince is that it's very sad and remorseful. I think that's why they add the or they struggle with and and thus add the pilot taking him back to his plane, him trying to give him water, him trying to revive him. They for, don't see for that one moment. last encounter. Right. He had to sleep with him one more time. <laughs> yeah, they do not see that moment or realize that moment. The only um But it, it it's a huge it's it's a great contradiction though, is it yes. not? To also who the pilot is as a character and what what his own arc should be by the end of the film. Right, because he doesn't accept it. There is no sense of acceptance of it. He fights it and rails against it until he hears the laughter. He even has another moment of doubt where he says after the boy, he wakes up the next morning, the prince isn't there. Then he says he was never here. It never happened. So for the creators of the film, choosing to die is not a good thing. It's not something we should be remorseful and sad. The pilot. The boy is only dead because the pilot could not save him. And what becomes redeeming of it is that we hear the laughter of the boys in the star. Perhaps it was a censorship issue where the, the censor saw it and said, this is going to encourage too many seven-year-old boys to kill themselves. So we got <laughs> we to gotta add something here. I doubt it was a censorship. I, do, I think it was just like, oh, the book can read as too much of a downer ending by like gladly willing to do this. No, yeah, the book has an X, and I think it's, uh, you know, it may be something that is different from the French are going through, you know, or have already gone through by the, you know, by the time the 70s is coming around. But when, you know, the book was being written or when it was published in 43, there is an existential movement that the French are a part of and, and becomes part of their culture. But first of all, we need to establish, do you think the, the book itself applies meaning to his death? Yes, but the book says that it's a beautiful moment. The book says this is this is not a but bad French thing. French existentialists would argue that there is no meaning in death. Well, I think the existentialists would say that the meaning comes from the essence of existence. Like, but it's, death itself, there is no meaning. There's nothing you learn about. The only thing that man would learn from death is the absurdity of living. The idea of, of man learning becoming aware of mortality through death or learning something from his death or there being death meaning in death would be uh heidegger philosophy which sartre would completely be in opposition to maybe but in the strain camus the stranger it's it's he's confronted because of the death of his mother so the death death for existentialists beg the question it becomes an impetus for the question of what was meaningful I think what becomes an ex existential expression is that for the little prince, there's just a there's just an acceptance. There's not a sadness. There's not a there's not a anything. Well, I agree. Him. I agree it's, with you, is... but but the, that's then the problem that I have with the film is that the film, his his act of suicide. Part of the problem is that they shift the arrangement of his encounter with the fox and the snake. Him encountering the snake first, and the snake being a devil like character it seems like his decision to commit suicide is more an act of deception by the snake the little prince believes that through this he will end up back at his planet and he's just leaving the vessel of his body on earth right the film definitely emphasizes that that this is an offer of transportation that this is a way to get back to your planet 
Whereas the book does have the snake express that, but it doesn't have the prince. Right, and there isn't a rejection of it by the pilot. The pilot sits next to the little prince. The snake comes up through the sand, bites him at the ankle, and he sits with him until he's dead. And he leaves his body. Right. The body does disappear, though, in in the book. Well, that's how it happens anyway. But yes, but you're right. (laughs) He doesn't try to save him. Well, you know what? There is a sense of... It's very real for the pilot in the book that the boy is back on his planet. And that, and now he's worried about the sheep because he he drew the muzzle without a leather strap. Yeah, but but so that that like, then starts to get into my theory that the pilot projecting, that's where he wants to, that's what he wants to believe, is that the prince is still going. Yes, on. that's also an out of a rejection of how a grown up would interpret that event. Yes, so much of it seems like this philosophy is just born out of rejecting this other idea, but you know, again, I I just. It starts to feel like there are elements of I'm telling a story, I'm creating mythology. This is not exactly like, you know, factual information. Well, I don't know cuz that yeah, but the the narrator and the and the pilot become one. Uh when the narrator says I'm writing this book and the when the pilot says I'm writing this book. And then the last page of the book, he he says this drawing is so that when you were in the desert and you find this spot, tell me if you see a little boy, like send me a letter. Didn't leave his his P.O. box, though, so I don't know how I can contact him. <laughs> you contact the publisher. But, th- but that, to me, is a continuation of the desperation of this individual, that he wants to believe that the little prince... Because even as, as that page is in the book, it feels like a very much... Like a postscript. It is, if you find it, it is like a treasure, but I think that's part of... He makes the book... He makes the book the same as the drawing with the boa constrictor and the elephant. He sort of, it's his litmus test. How you see this book is how enlightened you are and how deep your understanding of that invisibility. How much do you see with your, with your eye? How much do you see with your heart? But all in all, I have to say, I'm glad this film exists. I liked watching it when I was young and I for the most part, liked watching it again as an adult. Well, good for you. Happy it exists as well. (laughs) I'm with Simona, and I'm happy it exists as well. I'm a little, you know, um, there's an animated Little Prince that's coming out this year in March, and so I'm a, it's already a story within a story, and they couch it within another story, so... I guess they felt the need to introduce like a female character. Well, that is, that is an interesting point to bring up the the absence of women on Earth, women, yeah. and what that may or may not mean. I think Lerner saw that question, had that question when he read the book, and he answers it with the flower song, where he just sort of says, "This pilot must not have very much. He must not have ever had a meaningful relationship with a woman." Although interpretations, I think one of the interpretations that you sent us. Uh, Zach says that some people think that that's Zapri's, the rose is his wife, and that the um, fox is actually a woman who he may have had an affair with. By that interpretation, they feel he has very clear understandings of male-female relationships, but the woman alone, no, she's not depicted at all, who she might be or how she might, the child girl is not ever introduced nor the adult woman it's very much about a a male's 
journey from being a boy to being an adult. Well, I also think that there is sort of an ex- an examination of sort of masculinity in the film. Each one of these people being male figures who are sort of imprisoned by whatever theory of being a, what they consider being a man is. The accountant being somebody who who values wealth but having no intention as to why he values that. The general who fights an enemy that doesn't exist. And I think that what becomes our definition for it, as the book wants to celebrate, is the Little Prince's definition for it. The, the sense of responsibility he has for his planet, the sense of wanting to go out in the world and understand, the sense of enlightenment that he receives, and then the acceptance that his existence was brief, but was just what it was. Um, and that he doesn't have any sentimentality or regret or wanting anything more than what he got out of life. That, I think, is what Saint Saint-Doxpry presents as the definition for man. But I think the little prince does have some regret. Doesn't he say at one point that he shouldn't have left the rose behind? He says he shouldn't have listened to her. Well, he, he also says that I should have never left. The only thing I've learned since I've left is that I should have never left. Oh, I guess you're right, but I, is that in, hmm. That's in the movie as well, but it's all, yeah. it's in the film, but I swear it's also in this the This is book. not a literature podcast, just to be clear. <laughs> this isn't book jive. <laughs> well, yes, so, but that regret isn't like, you know, it's not the same, it's a regret of growth. You know, through that regret, I feel mm-hmm. that we're looking at a prince that has grown a great deal. For me, at least, only when you grow is when you do have a sense of, like, regret in that I would have handled this a different way, or because you now have knowledge that you didn't when you made a certain decision. So there is some sort of growth in acknowledging regret, I think. But don't you think also the movie or the book kind of also states that knowledge to some degree is sort of like a false hope? Just because you have knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that you will grow? Well, I think it celebrates the knowledge of experience over the knowledge of books or the knowledge of rhetoric or the knowledge of language. It expresses a knowledge of relationship because even the fox says, I know you because we tamed each other. And the boy says he knows the rose because he watered her. He took care of her. So it's a knowing that kind of knowledge is celebrated in the book or glorified. And that's through also the geographer, because the geographer never goes anywhere. He relies on others. He relies on others to discover these things and come back and tell him about it. So he has knowledge of them, but he doesn't have the firsthand experience or the understanding that the actual explorer does. Yeah. And that's where I have to wonder why they decided why in adapting the film why there were certain things they invented, like they invented the general. And the historian, because the historian's essentially the geographer, but I think the geography works better because the prince is an explorer. Right. Geography is also like it's a richer visual idea. Yeah. So I think it would translate better on screen. The general feels like this is my this is my attempt to be political. <laughs> I agree. I mean, by 74, I mean, the Vietnam War was still ongoing in 74 really it wasn't until 75 oh but you know learner was all about it he was in cahoots with nixon he watergate learner wow. alan j learner you don't remember him <laughs> indicted watergate that's you yeah. well yeah he and um g gordon liddy were working together learner and liddy's 
little prince. Yeah, I mean, that, the, only, the only problem I have with that is what I liked about the book is there's an amorality to nature. There is no such thing as good and evil. At least that's what I interpret from the book. In the book, though, he does have opinions on the men that he visits at the different planets. He might not, he may not say they're bad, but he does, he does have a critical eye towards them. Which I think is, yes. anytime you have a critical eye, especially on another person, you have some sort of form of morality on them. Yes, I think so. I, I think that where it f- falls back in line with existentialism is it trying to shuff, you know, put off the antiquated ideas of morality. And in that way, the, the good and evil that, Zach, you're kind of talking about is not present in the book and then does, is reintroduced. And, and so... I think that the book ends up being existential and the film is not. If you would like to leave that inhuman race and take up residence out yonder in space, when you are ready to go traveling on, sit right down upon a snake in the grass. One sting is quite enough to make you happy and free. One sting, and you'll discover how relaxed you can be posthumously. And while you're wandering through the heavenly blue, if you should see the Lord come strolling in view, go up and say you bring him best wishes from his fallen old chum, a snake in the grass, a snake in the grass, a snake in the grass. Also something on just sort of like the legacy of the film and that even though I guess it wasn't very successful, was it, Zach? I don't think it was successful, right? But you do have that Bob Fosse number goes on to influence Michael Jackson and is so transparently a part of the moonwalk at the, at the you know Motown anniversary show. Well, to be fair, this seems like it would be right up Michael Jackson's alley. Not, I'm not talking about like child molestation. <laughs> I'm talking about the whole concept of... Yes, absolutely. He was very much, you know, enamored with the Peter Pan and the narrative of remaining young and remaining, seeing with the heart, you know, and not seeing, seeing the invisible. So one of the things that you both have talked to me about is Bob Fosse clearly inspires Michael Jackson and then clearly inspires Beyonce with the Single Ladies video. But I guess my question is then, what what makes Michael Jackson mimicking Bob Fosse different from Beyonce mimicking Bob Fosse? Yeah, I I think a large part of the difference is is craft of an execution of dance. Like Michael Jackson has a commitment to executing the moves and really being a dancer and training himself in that way, even if he didn't receive a formal training. Um, so when he is doing Bob Fosse, he is executing all the things that Bob Fosse brought to dance because Bob Fosse studying under Jerome Robbins takes dance and musical dance and moves it into something different. He brings a lot of the, you know, sensuality and some of the more comic aspects to it as opposed to a majestic approach to dance that we see in earlier American musicals. And then 
Michael Jackson takes that and he keeps the sexy. He keeps the isolation of shoulder and head and fingertip, but then he moves it and it starts to incorporate an element of funk, an element of, of Motown, you know, staged, you know, movement and syncopation. I think it's that ability to execute where, where you're coming from, the legacy you were in, and then add something to it that launches it into the next, into another phase. And I see Beyonce, I appreciate that she wants to give it a sort of energy and she wants to definitely give it a tough kind of quality that she carries with her. But her execution of the movement is not as articulate and it's not as strong. She's, she's just not as strong a dancer. And I, I don't think there's any reason why she can't be as strong a dancer. She doesn't really hit it in, in her adaptation of Mexican Breakfast. I wonder how much also has to do with the fact that all three of us, all of our lives, has seen Michael Jackson do that. So in a way, we associate that more with Michael Jackson than Bob Fosse, whereas Beyonce's, we associate with Bob Fosse rather than her. Rather than her. So we go, oh, she's lifting or stealing from Bob Fosse, whereas Michael Jackson is such an iconic part of our entire life that it's just like, oh, he was obviously just doing an homage. I think that's absolutely fair because you're right. Like for me, definitely seeing Billie Jean and seeing that Motown performance was prior and there was a delight then when I saw the Little Prince and you're right. It's sort of like, you know, oh, see, Michael Jackson is he's cool. he's part of a legacy, right? He's, he's part of, you know, this legacy that preexisted him and yeah, it's awesome, you know? Um, so yeah, maybe people who for them, Beyonce is sort of primary in their mind and then they go back and see maybe they'll have a similar experience. I think it's interesting maybe the, that the moment she kind of released it, people immediately went to the Fosse, even though this is a lesser known Fosse choreography. It's not part of any of his films. It's not part of any of his musicals. Well, living in the YouTube culture allows that to happen. Again, whereas Michael Jackson was not, when he first did those things, did not live in the YouTube culture. So the movie Little Prince, even though it was only like nine years old by that point, wasn't exactly My Fair Lady. That Who really remembered that other than, say, diehard Little Prince fans? I think so. I th also think that Michael Jackson, I mean, there's also elements of Steam Heat, the number that Bob Fosse mm -hmm. choreographed in Billie Jean. So he's sort of fusing mm -hmm. Bob Fosse and the Little Prince and what Bob Fosse choreographs, the aesthetic, you know, the, the suit with the white socks and the hat, you know, all of that is playing with the hat as a prop, you know, so when he does that, he definitely is hearkening to people who don't, who, who aren't, are, you know, who know the musical world before Michael Jackson. They see those things and they see the cue. They see the reference and they know he's hearkening back to, you know, an earlier American dance tradition. Mm -hmm. And it, it elicits a level of respect that I don't think Beyonce elicited. And I, I, I have to, for me, I, I have to say, I think that has to do, Michael Jackson is open about his influences. You know, he says that Fred Astaire and Bob Fosse and Gene Kelly were, I mean, he definitely says for him, it's Fred Astaire and Bob Fosse because Physically, he's more similar to them than he was to Gene Kelly, but he makes that very openly. Um, whereas Beyonce has had a history of not being open about her influences to the point where, you know, people have had to sue her for, you know, her influences. See, I don't remember. Someone told me that she actually denied, denied knowledge of the existence of the Mexican breakfast dance sequence. I don't know if that's actually true or not. What, well, what I read about it was that she 
acknowledged that she had seen it and what she was inspired by was was the simplicity of it but then also that it afforded her the opportunity to shoot a music video that would be without the interruption of cuts and that she was what she felt was that the music video had gotten to the point where there was there was too much editing and too much fast cutting and she wanted to do something that was counter to the common aesthetic I don't have a strong opinion about it one way or the other. What I've read other choreographers speak about in regards to it is that with Bob Fosse's choreography, it's just as much about the dancer being an actor as it is them being a dancer and questioning whether Beyonce is also adopting a character when she's performing that choreography or if she's just being Beyonce. I think, in my opinion, she does not do an articulation of characterization or personification. However, she puts forth that Sasha Fierce is different from Beyonce. When you look at what dancers do when they personify characters, they actually change the way they move and they change the tempo and the the articulation of the movement. And she doesn't really do that. Whether she's Beyonce dancing in Crazy in Love or whether she's Sasha Fierce, she dances the same way. She whips her head the same way. You know, the, she arches her back. All these things are the same. And so there doesn't really seem to be a true difference between who she's saying Sasha Fierce is and who she's saying Beyonce is in, in the characterization of the dance, which is where it's supposed to live. Now, so when you mentioned like, um, like um, with Michael Jackson, he's part of like America's dance heritage. He, by him saying it, he seats himself in that. At our, at our point in the 21st century, our connection to the American musical and dance is probably at its lowest point ever, to where I don't think young people even understand the music. Like, I know, like, I know this has been a while, but when the movie Dreamgirls came out, I went to see it, and whenever they started singing, people started laughing, and there was one girl audibly said, why do they keep singing? Wow. Is there any kind of thing with that where... Today, we are so disassociated from it that those that are in the dance world have become more protective of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that's part of what I think is the struggle in The Little Prince is once you have the golden era of Hollywood dying and the musical, the American film musical, we don't have the money to really produce on that large uh, level. You also have on Broadway that that as an expressive medium on stage becomes more difficult to translate to an audience because someone breaking out in song is laughable. There's no reason for a person to start singing. And oftentimes in the libretto, the person is singing to themselves. There's less of an understanding. So in the 70s, Norman Jewison, who puts a lot of effort into why would someone start singing and letting it be motivated by the drama of the story and Dreamgirls being an adaptation of an earlier work that is quite famous and, and really well known. You have a lot of people that are accepting the moments where they're breaking out in song without that them trying to answer for it the way they did in the 70s. Always Jen hair is oh we're always answering for it. Why are we singing? You know, and are we singing because we're being campy? And so, a lot of times the answer is yes, we're going to camp this up. Or someone's in dialogue and they get so revved up, they get so passionate that they start arguing and screaming and, you know, really heightening their voice, their speaking voice first. And then that lets them into the song, you know, in a more of a violent way. But yeah, by the time Dreamgirls is coming along, an audience that doesn't have any understanding for that. And if the filmmaker, they're thinking they're working with canon, so they don't think they have to answer it. 
you're going to have, I think, yes, yeah, a, a moment of laughter when the musical number begins or when someone starts breaking out in dance. You know, the dance that people understand now has been defined by the music video. People understand why Britney Spears is dancing. You know, they understand why, you know, Beyonce in the video is dancing. But in the film, why, why are people dancing? You know, chorus line being, you know, kind of what ended up the only framework for dance in film was, well, because these people are, are auditioning for a Broadway show. So then you have that they are dancers in the reality. And, and then where we come today is a lot of the dance, you know, the dance battles. So again, dancing is part of the narrative. We're dancing right now because we are at a place where we're going to do a dance battle. We're going to do a dance off. I think it is lost a little bit, just the pure craft of the American musical. But I do think it's exciting when filmmakers find ways to make it relevant and urgent in the moment of the film. Well, I was going to mention uh, Rob Marshall's Chicago, the most financially successful of the musicals of the last like 20 years. And they broke out in the song and dance because it was fantasy at those points. And so thus it's acceptable. Exactly. And it was a fantasy that was dis- that was distrustful. He did the same thing in Nine as well. And while he, he is definitely, he is in love with Bob Fosse. He wants to be Bob Fosse. <laughs> well, like you can yeah. so much clearly see in him that that is just, if he could just live and breathe and give up his life, that's what he would be. But I, I do think that he's answering or addressing these questions in a way that the filmmakers, and I don't remember who directed Dream, Bill Dream Girls. Yeah, he didn't feel he needed to at all. He was just like, there's a history here and people will be told that history and they will appreciate it. And what's funny is he wrote wrote Chicago, the film version of Chicago as well. I know that in my audience, there definitely was that kind of like they needed to be immersed in it. But when Jennifer Hudson sings, there just was a hush. The audience I was in actually applauded. That happened in mine too. But I think um, that's a famous enough song that I think the audience was preconditioned, oh, this is where this film, you know, breaks down, we'll say. And that is definitely part of the legacy. And I think Jennifer Hudson established herself or earned, you know, a sort of credibility in that legacy. I mean, her her career is that she sang on like a, a cruise ship, which is where a lot of people who study musical theater after they graduate from college, that's where they end up, either working for Disney or working on a cruise ship if they're not on Broadway. And again, it was a moment where Beyonce was trying to gain that credibility. She asked for a song to be written for her. And then when she performed it, the audience, my audience responded in a lackluster kind of way. She again, with doing Mexican Breakfast, was, is again trying to establish herself in that legacy and, and really give herself a credibility that it seems she falls short of earning just by the work. So do you think she lacks the understanding of the ironic, like, detachment that Bob Fosse's sexuality had in his dance sequences? Absolutely. And I know that in one of her videos, she takes choreography directly from a French show. Um, It's sort of where the burlesque movement in France has gone. And it's completely shocking to Americans. And it's, you know, new topless dancing, but it's on another level. And in France, this particular show, I wish I could remember the name of it. It's it, it would have been what Moulin Rouge. It's it's today's Moulin Rouge. And she went to that with Jay Z, and she's like, I was so inspired. So then I did it in a video. And you look at it, and you're like, but the level and, and wanting to then also align herself with kind of Josephine Baker. But you look at the difference, and there is just sort of a grace that she doesn't seem to have or understand. There is sort of a subtlety, uh, a teasing 
you show, but then you don't show, you know, you, you, and she doesn't seem to have any of that in her carriage. And then when she, she, she keeps trying to align herself with so many different traditions. So then when that kind of doesn't, you know, that she does that, then she turns around and aligns herself with this feminist tradition. And it's like, but she doesn't seem to really ever understand any of these things. She's just co-opting all these things, hoping one sticks. Yes, that is what it seems. I'll hide behind the trees. Trembling. Ah! As I do in winter. In time, I'll start to feel at ease. Show my face and will begin to. Begin to. Get closer. And closer. And closer. We'll go a glance at a time, a small advance at a time. We'll be afraid of it and shy of it, avoid each other's eye a bit less often each day. The ice will soften each day as we get closer and closer and closer. So that's our show for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on The Little Prince. I'd like to thank Andy Swope, who can be heard on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast, which can be found at stephenandy.blogspot.com, and you can read his DVD and Blu-ray reviews on rockshockpop.com. And I'd like to thank our guest Simone Barros, whose dramatic writing and film work can be found at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback, you can do so by sending an email to filmjive at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed, where you can always leave a review, which goes a long way in expanding our listenership. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com filmjive to start your free audible.com trial. Thanks for listening. Check back in two weeks for our next episode. And until then, remember to keep on jiving. Closer and 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 closer all the time. Christmas Eve, midsummer day, a moment when, right there and then, we're gonna touch. Lil Beyonce, Beyonce, Lil, Lil B says to Big B, <laughs> it is of no consequence. To y'all. The B- to y'all. <laughs> the B-Aviator. That's, they would just throw B in front of the B-Aviator. Like stuff like that, you know? <laughs>